Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. So last week, we concluded a sermon series that we were calling Liminal Seasons, Living Between the Already and the Not Yet. And for seven weeks, we we looked at this reality that in the human journey, there has always been and there will always be serious seasons of change and transition where you're crossing over thresholds, where you, you leave the already of what used to be, but you're not yet in the new house, the new city, the new job, the new relationship, and there is this space in between, a liminal space where it, it matters what you do, and it matters how you choose to navigate your life that, that will determine what the next step of your journey will be. And for seven weeks, we looked at stories, experiences of individuals in the Bible who show us how to navigate the liminal season well. We even looked at themes, large sweeping themes throughout sacred scripture that show us that life is embedded, I mean, weaved into the very fabric of what it means to be a human being is liminal space. We talked about themes of wilderness, themes that repeat in the Bible like pits and exile. And, and then last week we even talked about what it means to lament, to find the language of lament during the liminal season so that by the time you make it through the other side, you've lived honestly, transparently, truthfully, and that's where transformation comes. And so there is no better example in sacred scripture for what it looks like to live in the liminal season than Job. The book of Job is a story about a good man who lost everything that mattered. And in his losing and in his grieving, in his anguish and, and, and loss, he finds a way to be so truthful and honest with God and with others and with himself that by the time he makes it to the end of his liminal season, he experiences a transformation that he, he would have never otherwise experienced. See, Job's story is our story. Job, the book of Job, is the oldest book that we have in the Bible. It's true. It's the oldest book we have probably because the story of human suffering and loss and anguish and lament is the oldest human story we have. Do you know that 
the book of Job that's in our Bible is not the only, I'm going to call it uh, Jobin story out there. In the ancient Near East, there were other Jobin stories. There's a Sumerian Job story. There's a Mesopotamian Job story. There's a Babylonian Job story. There's even an Egyptian Job story. And why? Because there's nothing new about suffering. It's the oldest story that we have, the experience of loss and anguish and hurt and pain. And what do you do when that comes to your life? You see, these stories that we find here in our Scripture, especially Job, well, they raise questions about life, about the experience that comes to any of us, really. So the question is, is Job a real person? Or is this parable, is he an eponymous figure? Or is he, is he a real person, Sean? Is he a real person? Well, yeah. I mean, Job is every person. Job is you and and Job is me. Job is everyone who has ever loved and lost. Job is about raising the questions that emerge in your heart whenever you are confronted with human suffering and pain. Questions like, why is this happening? And, and what did I do wrong? And why do the innocent suffer? And why is it that it sometimes seems like the guilty get off scot-free? Is the universe just? Is God fair? These are the kinds of questions that come up in Job. And if we're honest, they come up in our own hearts when we experience our own loss. In fact, in the book of Job, there are more questions asked in the book of Job than in any other book in the Bible. 330 questions are asked. Questions like these, right? And in the end, here's a little spoiler alert for you. The biggest question that's asked, the biggest overarching kind of meta question that's asked in the book of Job, why would God allow the innocent to suffer, is actually never answered. But by the end of this book, by the end of Job's journey, he experiences something better than an answer to the question why. And if, if you have questions that have emerged in your own journey about why the thing happened, why it fell apart, why it all came collapsing down, why did I go through this season, and what in the world could have been redeemable, what in the world was the purpose of the, the season my family went through, if you have questions like that, then maybe, maybe you and I need to sit for a while on the ash heap of suffering with Job. And we may find a transformation in our own hearts, just as Job. So here we go. Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He, 
He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. His sons used to go and hold feasts in one another's houses in, in turn, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the feast days had run their course, Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This is what Job always did. You can't begin with a resume better than Job's. From God's own mouth, God describes Job as blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. The picture we get is a picture of wholeness and perfection. In fact, the land of Uz, where Job's story takes place. It's an interesting place, really, because it's not, it's not found on a map. Mm -mm. The land of Uz is actually more of a, a theological description of place rather than a geographical description. If you follow me for a moment, it's, it's more theological than geographical. See, Uz while it doesn't exist on a map, is described as being from the east. In the ancient Near Eastern mind, the east was the place from which all origin began. In our Bible, there is another place that's simply described as being from the east. Eden. Eden. In the east that place of perfection and wholeness and beauty and paradise. And here in the book of Job, there is the opening chapter of perfection and wholeness. Even the numbers that are mentioned in the passage that I just read, seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys. These are symbolic numbers of wholeness. Completion, perfection. Dr. Samuel Ballantyne, who was my professor and instructor of Hebrew Bible uh, way back in the day, he said that the first two chapters of Job are meant to reflect the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, there are six movements of creation, six acts of creation that kind of crescendo into this seventh day of rest and celebration in paradise, right? Well, in Job, in the first two chapters, there are six scenes that unfold. Scenes on earth and scenes in heaven. There's an earth scene followed by a heaven scene, an earth scene and a heaven scene, earth and heaven. And just when you get to the seventh scene, expecting to see the reflection of rest and celebration in paradise, chapter 3 begins, and it's Job's lament. Because instead of crescendoing from nothing into beauty and grace and integration and wholeness, Job begins in the opposite direction. It begins with wholeness. Life is good. 
Life is full. The dream has been accomplished. He and his family are experiencing the paradise of perfection and blamelessness. And yet with each of the six scenes, there is a gradual decrescendo into lament and suffering. And why? For two reasons. On the one hand, the writer of Job is saying that when you lose your life, when suffering comes, that story, that painful experience that maybe you're even experiencing this season is as old as creation itself. Yeah. So you're in good company with the ages. But the other reason may be something even more comforting, and it's this. Job's scenes take place in heaven and on earth. And there is this gradual decrescendo, this dismantling, this disintegration from something that was so good and so right and so full into suffering and loss and anguish. Because in many ways, when we suffer, it turns heaven and earth upside down. Your suffering and pain right now, whatever it may be, and, and we're talking about a spectrum, right? You can suffer in a variety of ways, some light and some deep ways, but to every person who suffers, suffering is suffering, right? And Job opens with this reality. The first two chapters open with this promise that it is seen by God. Yeah. Well, the story continues in verse 6. One day, this is scene two, by the way, in heaven, the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him in all the earth, blameless and upright, a blameless and upright man who, who fears God and turns away from evil, then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put your fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, all that he has is in your power. Only do not stretch out your hand against him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. This scene, which is scene number two and taking place in heaven, it reveals an ancient Hebrew cosmology, an ancient way that the Hebrews thought that the universe and heaven was constructed. It's is populated by what's known as the B'nai Elohim. The B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, were this divine council, if you think about it that way. Think about a courtroom where in court there are all these different characters and they all have different job descriptions. You've got a court clerk, you've got a prosecuting attorney, you've got a defense attorney, you've got a bailiff, right? In many ways, the B'nai Elohim served as a council for the Lord to do God's bidding. 
And one of the members of the B'nai Elohim, or in this case the B'nai Ha'elohim, was, was a character known as Hasatan. Now in your Bibles, in what I just read here, typically the word Satan is capitalized with a capital S and it gives the impression you're talking about a person's name, Satan. And that immediately conjures up ideas that you and I sometimes carry around about Satan, the, the personification of evil. But truthfully, in the Mene Elohim, in the Hebrew text, and in the Hebrew imagination, Chasatan was not a person, but a job description. There was literally a person or a, or a, 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 a role on the Bene Elohim, the divine council, and, and the Chasatan was the adversary played the role of an adversary, which that word, chasatan, you notice the ha, is the definite article of the, the Satan, the adversary. This person was not an evil person or divine being. It was, it was actually a person whose job it was to accuse, to go up and down the earth seeking to make a case like a prosecuting attorney would in court against God's people you know what's interesting to me is god has this prosecuting attorney stand before god and with almost the language of litigation god says have you considered my servant job he's blameless and upright he fears god and turns away from evil and then hasatan brings a case against him so yeah of course he is it's because you've babied him. You've protected him. You've put like a fence around him and he's blessed and he's so blessed that of course he's going to be righteous because there's nothing going wrong in his life. You take your hand off of him and he'll curse you to your face. I guarantee it. I submit to the court. Exhibit A. And God says, well then very well. You may touch his life, but don't. You may... Uh, touch all that he has, but don't touch his life. So Satan goes out to bring his case against Job. It's interesting to me, on a couple of levels, this scene that unfolds in heaven. Now, on one hand, it's, it's interesting because God would create, if this is to reflect creation, that God would create embedded in the very human experience there is the presence of adversary. That this God who loves and creates out of God's love still creates a world where there are adversarial hasatanic, right, adversarial powers that are constantly moving against us to accuse. Right? And sometimes those adversarial powers will come in the, in the face of people that you know who press up and press down, and bring their case against you, and constantly are, are testing you to push you to the very edge to see how far you will go. In the words of Jesus, sometimes hasatan arrives, in the words of Jesus, as someone who reviles you, speaks all manner of evil against you. And in, in those moments, the testing of Job and the testing of any of us, is to see how far we will allow the adversary to push us and to see how we stand up under that pressure. Yeah. 
But something else that's interesting to me in this part of the story is that there's always a limit to the power of the adversary. You notice that God says to Hasatan, you may go and do what you have suggested, only do not touch his life. Do you know that no matter how much pressure you're under, no matter what you're going through, what kind of loss or, or in intensity or adversarial energies you may be experiencing, whether it's an adversarial energy from a person who just won't quit on you, or maybe an adversarial energy that comes through systems that seem to be stacked against you, and no matter what you do, you can't seem to rise above it. Do you know that every chasatonic, every adversarial energy that presses against you has a limit? Because there is only one who has the power to give and take away your breath. I don't know what it is that you may be experiencing these days, but you need to know that God sees and it will not end you. Well, Job is going to be put to the test and here is exactly the kind of loss that he experiences. It picks up in verse 13. One day, when his sons and daughters were sitting or were eating and drinking wine with the eldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell on them and carried them off and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you while he was still speaking. Another came and said the Chaldeans formed three columns, made a raid on the camels and carried them off and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another came and said your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came across the desert, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The accusation of Hasatan was that if you take all the things that matter to Job away from him, he'll curse you to your face. It raises a question for me. How connected is our worship to our blessings? I mean, how closely tied is, is our adoration of God to, to what we have? Because the, the fact is, part of my worship actually really is about the way that God has blessed me. Part of my worship is God every morning, in the morning, my early morning sits, I'm like, I can't believe that you have blessed me with the family and the, that I have and the people in my life. And, and I, 
I eat and I have shelter and I'm comfortable and I don't deserve any of it. And yet you bless me and I worship you because you have blessed me. But what would my worship look like if it were all gone? What would yours? I mean, if, if the very things that you hold dearest were stripped away, is there still anything about the character and the essence, the very nature of God's worthiness that would still command your worship? This is one of the 330 kinds of questions that the book of Job compels us to ask. In 1991, there, were, there was a meteorological phenomenon that, that had never been, been seen or recorded before. Three massive storms converged in the icy waters of the North Atlantic. There was a storm there already, and it had done its own level of damage. But at the same time, over the Great Lakes, there was a, another weather uh, system, another storm that had gathered and was moving east. At the same time, there was a hurricane that was moving up the coast of the U.S. and it had just begun to die down. But when all three of those storms converged in the same place, the hurricane that had previously begun to die down was re-energized by the storms that had con con or converged there in the North Atlantic. And it created this this. Um, massive superstorm that wreaked havoc on all the ships. One ship actually was sunk and was never re re returned or never recovered. They called this storm the perfect storm. Sometimes suffering comes like a like a perfect storm, and it's not so much that any of us can't handle one storm at a time. We can. Most of us can find the grit to be able to kind of stand against the weather one storm at a time, but what do you do when storms come from every direction? So she, she's diagnosed with this disease, and, and she's supposed to start treatments. The only problem is she was diagnosed just before COVID, right? And so now the treatments have to be delayed and, and even routine doctor visits are now a little off because now she can't bring her two kids to wait in the waiting room because of social distancing. And her husband has lost half of his clients, which means income is severely lost. And, and he has to kind of moonlight and take up other jobs at night, which wouldn't be a problem, but the trouble is the kids are now doing virtual learning on, online and, and she's too sick to help and he wants to be home to help her and to tutor the kids, but he can't because he's got to work extra. You see what I mean? Sometimes one storm at a time can be managed, but do you know what it feels like? To feel like the very universe itself is against you. Do you, you know the name Job? means persecuted it means hated do you know what it feels like to feel as if your life has so imploded upon you that it's like the universe hates you that you are job and yet through all of this so far verse 22 picks up and says how job is handling it 
in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. Now, spoiler alert, we're just a few verses away from that story changing. But for now, how closely tied is your worship to what you have? Well, the story continues with scene number four. We pick up and we read these words. One day, the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord. And it's the same scene. The B'nai Elohim have gathered once more, right? And it's the same language and rhythm and gait and pace to it. And, and God says the same thing that God said to Hasatan before. Have you considered my servant Job? Right? Uh, he's blameless, upright. He fears God and turns away from evil. So you put your hand against him and he's still standing. How you like him now? And then Job refers back to God in the same way. Listen to what he says. Job, beginning in verse 4 of chapter 2, we hear these words from Satan. Then Satan answered the Lord, skin for skin, all that people have they will give to save their lives, but stretch out your hand now and touch his bone, his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, he is in your power, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and inflicted loathsome sores on Job from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Job took a potsherd with which to scrape himself as he sat among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as any foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. This scene is a picture of absolute disintegration. The story of Job begins fully integrated. He had accumulated life and blessing and, 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 and everything was blameless and upright and whole. It was Edenic, right? But gradually, one loss after the next was a story of gradual disintegration until all that's left is Job sitting on the ash heap, literally scraping the sores off of his disintegrating body. And he still holds on to his integrity because there is a level of integratedness. There is a level of wholeness and completion and strength that is so down deep inside you where the Almighty abides with you that nothing on the outside that happens to you can disintegrate you fully. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. And yet, there is this provocative scene where he literally is scraping the sores off from a broken piece of pottery or clay. You know that in Eden, we were made from the clay, made from dust and ash, 
Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And here's a picture of the human, Job, down to the very base level of what it means to be alive. He is dust and ash and disintegrating before our very eyes. And his wife comes to him and says, how long will you persist in your integrity, in your interior wholeness? Go ahead and curse God and die. Now, over the ages, Job's wife has been really misunderstood, I believe. Many interpret her as kind of an evil presence, like, like somehow Job had all the faith and she didn't have any faith, that Job was wise and that she was foolish. But can I just ask you to consider something? So she goes to Job and says, look, just go ahead and curse God and, and be done with it. Do you, do you know what it's like to have a friend, someone close enough to you to where <laughs> when they say something that you've been thinking all along, triggers something in you so yeah he lashes out and he says you know you speak like a like a fool don't don't talk about that shall we receive only the good and not the bad and he says all the righteous things but you know that's about to change in this next chapter see she says something that perhaps he's been thinking all along do you know what it's like for someone to say to you you know what i think that you need some help on this i don't need help i'm not weak what's wrong with you and yet having them say it to you it's like a friend who holds a mirror up and you see for the first time from a vantage point that you couldn't see before. So Job's wife, when she says, go ahead and curse God and die, you know what's provocative for me in this, this verse is that the word in Hebrew for curse is the same word in Hebrew for bless. It's barek. Barak from the, from the word barak, which means blessing, but it also means cursing. That in the Hebrew text, she's actually saying, bless God and die. But what I find compelling in this story about suffering is that the same word is used for blessing and curse. Is it possible that your suffering, which feels like only a curse, might be a blessing as well. I mean, it doesn't feel like a blessing at the time. Of course not. That'd be ridiculous. But is it possible that our ancient Hebrew sisters and brothers understood that the word is the same word, but because sometimes our blessings and our curses, well, they're like twins. So you and I ought to have an easy time understanding that because we follow Jesus who was crucified on a cross. And, and from the outside looking in, the, the torture and agony and abject suffering that he endured on the cross seems not, like nothing but humiliation and pain and despair. It looks to the outsider like a failure, like the cross is foolishness, to, right, to the wise and wisdom to the foolish. It, it looks as if it is nothing but a curse, but you and I know better that the suffering of the cross brings a blessing to the cosmos. Because on the cross, God demonstrated once and for all that God was willing to touch the human experience where, where we are most in solidarity with one another in our human pain and suffering. And instead of leaving us there in our sin, degradation, suffering, oppression, 
through the cross, he transforms the pain. And he transforms the suffering so that we experience a transformation that we never could have experienced without it. Spoiler alert, by the end of Job, he will experience through this journey of suffering a transformation that he would have never experienced had he not lost everything. And I wonder if that's a word of hope to you today. That there is a limit to the power of the adversary in your life. Yes, there are adversarial energies and powers and people and systems that seem to work against us all the time, but there is one even above those adversarial clouds, we'll put it that way, who at the end of the day has the final word about you. So maybe the prayer that you pray today, knowing that we've got a long journey to make with Job, knowing that this goes somewhere, maybe the prayer today is this, God, I don't know how this ends. And maybe for the first time, God, I've given, I've given some space in my heart and in my head for the possibility that what I'm going through is not without purpose, that what I'm experiencing may actually have some, some higher, more meaningful purpose in my life that I simply cannot see because I can't see the end from the beginning, but you can. So I pray that even as my own life disintegrates around me, that there would be an interior integration with you. That I would, I would welcome you, Lord, to become alive, so alive in me that the cross of Christ, the resurrection of the Lord, is felt by me even though it feels like I'm bearing my own cross. Show me that this goes somewhere. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Brother and sister, let me tell you, if you pray something like that or anything close to that, you need to understand that God hears that kind of cry. God respects that kind of honesty and truthfulness to be able to say, I don't have the answers and I'm going to ask the questions, but even if I never receive the answer I'm looking for, if it transforms me by asking it, then here I am. When you pray a prayer like that, God hears it. And I, I pray that if you did pray that kind of prayer, you tell somebody about it. And tell me. I want you to e email me and let me know that you're on this spiritual journey where maybe you are in the midst of seeking meaning through all of these experiences, these losses, these, these, these moments of suffering that you've recently endured. I pray that you would share that with me. And I'll be praying with you. But wherever it is that you go from where you are today, know that you have some company along the way. My prayer is that Christ would go before you to prepare your way. That Christ would go behind you on the days that you fear and feel like retreating to encourage you one step 
forward at a time. May Christ go to your right and Christ to your left, abiding closer than even a sister or a brother. May Christ go above you on the day when dark clouds of the adversary roll in to remind you there is one above the clouds who at the end of the day has the final word. May Christ go beneath you, girding you with confidence and removing all forms of fear. But mostly, may Christ go in you, transforming you from the inside out until your hearts beat in rhythm with His. Amen.